1: Hey, listeners. If you're enjoying our content, you're going to love our friends over at the Mission Critical Podcast. Hosted by Bay Street Bull editor-in-chief Lance Chung, Mission Critical explores the purpose and values that drive today's most game-changing leaders. Listen to guests like Arianna Huffington, Simple CEO Michael Katchen, Reddit COO Jen Wong, Toronto Raptors head coach Nick Nurse, and many more as they share their insights on what it takes to be great. You can find the show anywhere you get your audio Just search mission critical. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. We speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Ahmed Munawar, who's the founder and CEO of the 90-Day Pipeline and an advisor to seven-figure consultants. His company has helped hundreds of clients across every B2B vertical you can think of on every continent raise their level of play. He's got an incredibly interesting origin story, having gone from an accountant at Ernst & Young to the forefront of the digital marketing world, running a multi-million dollar business backed by a unique blueprint that is truly something to be in mind. In this one, we dive into some pretty interesting topics, including imposter syndrome and why having it is actually a good sign. We also talk about the importance of committing to mastery, why power positioning is the first step in getting marketing right, the power of LinkedIn as a primary channel for B2B selling, how to properly address and think about scaling a consulting practice, and so much more. And with that, let's get to the show. Here is Ahmed Munawar. talking about this whole notion of imposter syndrome and self-doubt and how you see consultants that you work with experience this and, and how that holds them back. Just say more a little bit about that. And have you ever experienced it in your business where you've had to overcome this yourself?
0: I mean, imposter syndrome, in my experience, is something that you're constantly battling with as an expert. And I don't think it ever goes away. And I kind of see imposter syndrome as a as a lead indicator that you're, that you're pushing the envelope here. Okay. So everybody has a certain conception of themselves. They have a self image, if you will. Right. And to the extent that you stay within the confines of that self image, you don't really need to worry about imposter syndrome, right? You're operating within the boundaries of what you believe you are capable of. And it's safe and it's secure and it's comfortable and there's no growth there whatsoever. And we go through seasons too, right? Like it's not like everybody should be pushing hard all the time. I see it as a signal, right? Like if you if you don't have imposter syndrome, that just tells me that you're playing it too safe. When you feel that 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 level of of uh you know can I do this? Am I that kind of person? Am I capable of this? Uh, to me, that's a signal that I'm I'm doing what I should be doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you feel this way when you were at Ernst and Young? like going back to your career as an accountant and you don't hear about this pivot from CA to marketing content genius very often. What were you feeling back then? What was the catalyst to jumping out of corporate and launching your, your career?
0: So I always loved marketing, but I didn't know I loved marketing. Like I was, I loved writing. I did really well in English. Uh, in In business school, I loved the marketing classes. But I, I was like, there's no money in those things. <laughs> right? and, and even marketing, you know, coming out of business school, I, my, you know, my attitude was marketing. Anybody can figure that stuff out. I don't need a degree in marketing. I need like a hard technical degree. I need to become an accountant with letters. You know, I need a discipline. Um, and, you know, I wasn't wrong because I did figure out marketing after the fact. Right. Uh, and so that was my attitude for a long time, despite the fact that I had a deep interest in marketing and psychology and persuasion. And going through school, certainly my experiences in like extracurricular work, leadership, student clubs, I used all of that. I used my, 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 my marketing prowess, if you will, my persuasion skills. I used that and I, and I benefited from those skills, but I never thought of it as a career. And then Ernst and Young was really just the, the validation that, that, that that's not the right path for me. <laughs> and it was a great experience, great firm, great people. I, I think very fondly of that experience till this day, because rarely will you find yourself in an environment where everybody is just top brass. And that was an incredible environment, but it was validating for me um, in the sense of it it, it told me that, you know, although I was reasonably good at the quantitative side of things, accounting and finance and the analytical side of things, that that wasn't necessarily where my interest lied. And so there was a heavy dose of imposter syndrome, but Mm -hmm. that was a different... It's an interesting question because that was a, you're making me reflect on it now. That was a different type of imposter syndrome. That was one that didn't feel right. Because at the time when I, when I went to Ernst & Young, my goal was to either make partner or, and I was in banking at the time. So I was at Ernst & Young, but my specialty was in banking. So I was auditing, uh, you're Canadian, so you know CIBC. I was auditing CIBC during the crash of 08. I was on the wholesale banking team. We were responsible for valuing, like our team directly was responsible for valuing the mortgage-backed securities as the values of those securities were plummeting by the hour. And so my goal at the time was banking. I wanted to either become a partner at the firm in the banking practice or leave the firm and and join a bank and become an executive. And uh, and so that was, you know, I had a healthy dose of imposter syndrome because I looked up at the partners and I looked up at the people that were our clients at the banks. And I was like, I don't know if I could be them. But- the difference was there was no real desire to be them either. I couldn't see it and I didn't want it. I didn't want to be doing what they were doing. I didn't I didn't see myself in that role and that's why I left. Mm-hmm.
1: So when you leave, did you have clarity as to what you wanted to do next?
0: No, I was, I mean, I was looking for an escape hatch. So I knew that that wasn't the right path. I knew I wasn't going to stay at the firm and make partner and that wasn't going to satisfy me. I knew that I w- didn't want to be in banking anymore. I knew that wasn't a career for me, but I didn't know which path to go down. So. I remember doing some scenario analysis and I didn't know where I wanted to be or what the outcome was or, you know, where at at this time I didn't know I wanted to be a professional marketer. I hadn't made those decisions. I had an interest in it, but didn't see it as a a career yet necessarily. And so I kind of mapped out, you know, what are the, what are the experiences I can get into next that will help me clarify the direction I want to go in? Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw a few different options. Option one was start a small accounting firm and Sure, I'm not crazy about accounting anymore, but it's entrepreneurial and it'll be fun, right? Option two was go out into industry and get a kind of cushy controller job somewhere or a VP of finance job somewhere, Um, something that's not terribly challenging, clock in nine to five, and then figure out in my spare time what I wanted to do. Because Ernst & Young was not nine to five. Ernst & Young was nine to nine, Mm -hmm. right? And busy season was nine to 12, right? So you do not have a lot of time and space to think through outside of work what you wanted to be doing. So that was option two, go find a cushy job in finance, and and then figure out on the side what I wanted to do. And option three was uh, find a small entrepreneurial company that was looking for somebody to come in and really build things up from the ground up and from scratch. And that's that's what I chose because the opportunity presented itself. Those are hard to find. But I had a couple of friends who had started up a, a consulting firm. They had one big whale client Uh, And they didn't really think of it as a business yet. They just started the firm on the back of a contract, which is very typical, right, in consulting. And they were like, hey, maybe there's a business here. Why don't you come and help us build out the business? And that's what I ended up doing. So what's the
1: origin story then of the 90-day pipeline? And it sounds like, based on what you're saying, you end up in this scenario and they almost by default become your first whale client, quote unquote. Like, How do you begin to pivot toward... The 90-day pipeline, boutique growth, and everything that you start to build from there.
0: Yeah. So that that consulting firm that I joined, that's where I really cut my teeth in marketing and business development mm-hmm. because I was responsible for everything on the non-delivery side. So we were in the education management space and my colleagues, the consultants, the subject matter experts were masters and PhDs in education. And so I had nothing to do with delivery You know, I wasn't that wasn't my my area. I was on the business side. So marketing, business development, project management, operations, finance, everything. But over the years in that firm, I started to specialize in marketing. That became more of my interest, more of my focus where my skills lied, and where the leadership of the firm wanted me to go. And that's really where I started to develop a competency in marketing and business development in that professional services context. And this is a long time ago now, right? So we were doing some really cutting-edge things at the time, webinars, blogging, content marketing. Uh, that was That's commonplace now and it's mainstay now, but that was 10 years ago, not mainstay. And certainly in our industry and education, which is very buttoned up and very traditional, it was unheard of. And we did really, really well on the back of those tactics. What channels are you using back then? This is what, circa 2011? So channels back then, I mean, LinkedIn wasn't really a thing. <laughs> you know, I I think we we were on LinkedIn, but it wasn't like it is today, like where that's the B2B channel. It was a lot of like on-website type activity, so blogging and content marketing via the website. It was a lot of, yeah, it's coming back to me now. It was a lot of attending trade shows and events and conferences. And then taking those contacts and turning them into digital relationships. We would gather contacts at live events. we turn them into email relationships. And then we, we would distribute webinars, blogs, podcasts, material like that via email. Social wasn't a big, a big part of it at the time, at least not for us.
1: What happens? And I mean, you become this, I guess, early adopter in what we call content marketing today, right, as people understand it. So how do you, Amin, begin to think, I have this competency, I have this expertise, I have this entrepreneurial itch I got to scratch. Um, Here's an opportunity for me to go my own way. How does that happen?
0: So basically what I realized in that experience was we kind of stumbled upon, and I kind of stumbled upon almost accidentally a a brilliant way to do marketing that was perfectly suited for consulting professional services. Because when you think about content marketing, right? What is it? Content marketing or thought leadership, more broadly speaking, is about demonstrating your expertise in advance of any kind of transaction. What it's like, don't take my word for it. Here's the proof that we're really good at what we do and that we're experts. And if you decide to engage with that proof and drink the Kool-Aid, then let's have a conversation, which is, I didn't know it at the time, but a brilliant way to sell consulting services and professional services because your expertise precedes you your reputation precedes you and ultimately what are you buying from a consultant or a service provider you're buying their expertise and their insight right and so it's a great way to sell all kinds of things but it's a brilliant way to sell consulting and so after i saw how well that worked in that context uh, that capability combined with the itch at that at this point i had the itch leaving ernst and young i didn't have the itch to start a company because i didn't you know i knew eventually i would I didn't feel ready. I didn't have an offer. I didn't know what I would do, right? Now I had an offer. I knew that I could combine, I could take this capability marketing, business development, content marketing, right? Copywriting in a professional services context. And I knew that like the firm that I was working with at the time, there were many other small boutique professional service firms that don't know what the heck they're doing on this front, have no idea where to begin and can't afford to, and probably shouldn't hire a you know, what I at the time, a senior level marketer and pay them six figures to do this for them because they didn't need that kind of support at that level. And so that was the the impetus for me to start boutique growth and the name, you know, although I don't like it anymore, to be frank, it, that it worked at the time. It was about helping boutique professional services firms grow. And that was it. So initially I sold myself as kind of a, you know, a hired gun, you know, director of marketing on a fractional basis. If you're a consulting firm, professional service firm, I would come in and I would basically run your shop on a fractional basis, build the team, run the campaigns, help you create the content, work with the subject matter experts. And that was the first, I would say, three to five years, probably four years uh, of the business. And that's really to answer your previous question, you know, how did the 90 day pipeline come about? It was through that experience. It was battle testing The, the experience I had with one firm, right, taking that and then running that playbook in different firms, in different industries, in different ways, and observing what works and what doesn't work, that was the impetus for me to package up that learning into the formula and the program that we call the 90-day pipeline.
1: Mm-hmm. And just to paint a relative picture for folks, I mean, now you know, you're seven years plus into the business, this thing has scaled really nicely. You've really cracked the code, I would say, on scaling a consulting operation or an advisory operation, which, you know, at least in my experience and based on what I've seen has been a major challenge for folks. So talk a bit more about that.
0: I think it's a challenge for folks for a couple of reasons and and you're spot on. It's funny because I've got a couple of couple of buddies in the space who run similar businesses to me. And, and sometimes we reflect on, we've been in lots of masterminds. We've been in lots of programs that help people do these things. and. You know, the honest to goodness truth is the success stories are far, you know, few and far between. There's not a lot of them that, that have been able to scale to the level that we've scaled to. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is not everybody can do the things required to scale to this level. And that's going to, this is going to risk me sounding arrogant, but I assure you it's not arrogance. I just have certain capabilities that are perfect for this. Like, you know, marketing, sales, those are the harder things to dial in. And those tend to be where I excel. Whereas you have other folks who are really, really good at what they do, really strong subject matter expertise, really strong technical experts, but they just haven't, they don't have mastery over marketing and sales. Maybe they're they are good enough at it to get by, but not good enough at it to build like a multiple seven figure firm, right? And that doesn't mean they can't do it. It means that either they have to commit to mastery, which is a process, or they've got to find people that can help them and hire and partner, et cetera. So I think that's one reason why a lot of people, um, are not able to do this is because they think they have all the competencies and capabilities to do it. Uh, and they can wear all the hats and they find out the hard way that that may or may not be true. And they've got to either partner, hire earlier, et cetera. And, and I probably should have hired out earlier myself as well. Right. But it takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that. And, and, and not everybody is that person or should be that person. That's one. Um, and the second, frankly, is just like pig headed persistence, to be like blunt, right? Most people don't want it bad enough and they're not willing to persist through the challenges and the battles that you have to fight to to scale a business. And um, that's not a knock on them. It just means they haven't thought through what they really want because if they really wanted it bad enough, they would persist.
1: Mm -hmm. Can you talk about these uh, process pillars in more detail that you've mentioned to me in past conversations? So optimizing for revenue, optimizing for product market fit or offer fit in this case as an advisory firm. And then third, optimizing for scale. Like as you reflect back on your journey, how do you explain to listeners what that means?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So, and that was the third point I was going to mention, and thank you for bringing that up, is sequence. A big part of why things worked out well for us is we focused on the right things at the right time. We didn't try to do everything on day one, right? There was a sequence of events. And it's funny because right now we're we're building out another offer that's going to help experts and consultants who run Done For You services and have tapped out on their capacity. We're helping them build out a Done With You offer and scale it much like we did. And this has been a big part of the conversation is what are the things that you focus on? at the right time in the right sequence, right? Because that's, that's make or break it. That's where the battles won or lost. You know, in the beginning, um, and so a lot of our clients that are working with us right now on this, they're like, oh, well, how do I scale? <laughs> it's like everybody wants to scale, right? Like when scale? In the early days when I designed and delivered the 90 day pipeline, I did things that were decidedly not scalable. <laughs> like I, I met with all the clients in a group setting and one-on-one. If anybody needed anything, if they had any issue, we would get on a call, we would work it out. It was not scalable in the beginning. And, you know, Adam, you know, now we have a team and we have all these resources, but it was just me for the first couple of years, up until about a year ago, it was really just me delivering. And so it was not scalable in the beginning, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was not scale. The, the first milestone was, do we have an offer that will sell and that works? You know, which you, you'd call that product market fit, but not just product market fit. We were validating the, 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 the saleability of the offer, the desire of the offer, but also the delivery of the offer because I was coming from a place where as a done for you service provider, I knew I could go into a client's organization, do the work and get results. That wasn't a question. Happened before, right? What I didn't know is, could I create an experience that helps clients get results on their own? Big question mark. And the first, you know, six months to a year easily was just about product market fit. It wasn't about growth. It wasn't about scale. We were probably doing you know, I'm fuzzy on the numbers, but we're probably doing, you know, maybe five to seven clients a month. And the price point was relatively low and it was not about revenue. It was not about profit. It was about validation. Is this the right offer for the right audience? And how do we get better at delivering the offer and helping clients get results? Once you
1: have that offer market fit and you start to think about scale, what did you learn? What worked what didn't work and what would you recommend other people learn and or practice if they're thinking about
0: scale? A couple things. Um, number one is y- you need to have an outcome in mind. So at the time, and it's shifted now, but at the time I was very, very focused on $100,000 a month in revenue for all the wrong reasons, to be frank, right? So I'm not saying <laughs> that was what I should have done, right? But you know, for all my faults, I was clear on what I wanted, Right. I wanted hundred K a month. I wanted to have a seven figure business. I wasn't really sure what happened after that. I probably saw that as like, a, oh, at this point I've made it, which is obviously silly in retrospect, right? That's what I wanted. And I was just like, heads down, that's where we're going to go. And what's the fastest path to getting there? Okay, so that's, that's one is get really clear on what you want because growing a business in abstract terms, like I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to just grow a business. I don't know how to just stay motivated to grow a business. I don't know how to grow for growth's sake. You know, I had a target, it was 100K a month. I had my reasons for that target, which again, now I think are kind of silly, but at the time they were meaningful to me and they motivated me. And that created and forced a level of clarity. Um, I tell tell our clients all the time that there was a period of time when, you know, we were doing maybe 30, 40, 50K a month, and every day uh, I would journal to this prompt. It was, how would 100K me show up today? And it's really cheesy now that I think about it, but honestly, it worked like a charm because it forced me to become the person that's capable of generating that kind of revenue and building a company of that size every single day. And that was really helpful. So one is getting clear on what you want. And the second piece is identifying where your bottlenecks are. Okay, So once you, know, once you have something up and running and it's going, it's easy to say, well, I just need more clients or I just need to make more sales. I have to run more ads. And that's not always the case. Right, you got to think about where are your bottlenecks as the founder. You know where where are, are you spending your time in ways that are uh, underutilized? Because in the beginning, you're doing everything right. Like I was marketing, I was sales, I was fulfillment, I was all those things. And so growth at that point becomes about where do I remove myself from first? Right, which piece of this puzzle do I take myself out of? So that I can focus on the things that I have a core capability in. So with me, you know, the first thing was sales because marketing, I wasn't about to give marketing to anybody else. Couldn't. I'm a marketer through and through, right? Like that's the thing that I'm going to give up last, right? And I haven't given it up yet. We have a team, but I still lead marketing delivery at the time. That was really hard to give up because I was the, I was the face, right? I was the brand. I was the expert. When clients enrolled, they, they, they believed they were getting me. They expected me right? That's shifted now a little bit, but at the time it was just me, right? Didn't really know how to get, get, you know, uh, replace myself in delivery. So the obvi- obvious answer was sales. You know, could I get somebody else or people to come in and replace me in the sales conversation? I mean, that was a big lift, frankly, right? Wasn't easy, but that was the easier one. And it was the thing that was probably draining my energy most of the time I was spending 20 hours a week on sales calls and it wasn't uh, really where I wanted to be spending my time. And once I had people in place to cover those functions then I truly stepped into the role of the CEO, but that was my journey. And I think the, to answer your question properly, the question people need to ask themselves when they get to that stage is where is their bottleneck? Because for somebody else, it might've been marketing or it might've been delivery. And there's no one size fits all answer to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Going back to something you were saying earlier about commitment to mastery. Can you say more about what that means? How does someone put this into practice?
0: I think everybody, you need to, you need to identify the very narrow scope of activities that you want to be world class at. And it and it can't be everything. And the more narrow that scope is, A, the easier it becomes to become world class. You know, this is why you know people that have PhDs have PhDs in very specific things. You know, like my dad has a PhD in like a specific type of algae in the Great Lakes. You know what I mean? Like it's very specific, you know, and so, the more narrow your focus is, the easier it becomes to become world class. And the the higher your level of mastery, the more fulfillment you get out of that particular you know scope. You know, I'm thinking about Cal Newport's book, "So Good They Can't Ignore You." You know, he does a really good job of articulating in that book that mastery precedes passion. It's not the other way around. People think I'll follow your passion, and and you'll be happy. And and Cal says no, it's the opposite. Mastery precedes passion. Good example that he gives in the book is Steve Jobs. Right? Steve Jobs did not have a, a passion for technology initially. He partners with Wozniak, and Steve wanted to become a Buddhist monk. He was trying to raise money to go join a monastery and become a monk. Mm-hmm. And you know, Wozniak goes, hey, well, can you help me sell some computers? Steve develops a mastery in selling and thinking about and evangelizing technology. And the passion comes out of that mastery, right? So, I mean, to me, that having passion for your work and being able to wake up every day and do the things that you are born to do is that's like the holy grail. Like no amount of money can ever be greater than that, than the fulfillment that comes from making your own unique contribution to the world, to the economy, to society at large. And mm-hmm. mastery is the path to doing that. You have to develop mastery within a specific scope to be able to uh, derive the benefits and the gratification that comes with delivering your work. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you are there personally right now? No, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I think mastery is a journey, right? It's not a destination. It's a journey. There are, it's been my habit to look at people who are ahead of me, not in terms of uh, money or financial results, but in terms of capability and expertise. So if I compare myself to the folks who are ahead of me and there are many, um, in terms of their capability and their expertise, absolutely not long road ahead. So let's
1: get into the weeds on a couple of major, what I want to say themes related to B2B selling. Okay. And These are the cornerstones of the 90 day pipeline program. So I don't think that I'm giving away any secrets because you talk about this stuff publicly in videos that you publish. The first is power positioning. The second is leadership marketing. And the third is results mechanism. So say more about each of these.
0: So we start with power positioning and power positioning is really built on the premise that, uh, what you charge and who you work with and your power in the marketplace is very simply a function of supply and demand. And so as consultants, professional service providers, especially the smaller firms, one thing you realize pretty quickly is that we have no control over demand. I I don't decide the demand in my marketplace and neither do you, Adam, right? Now, we can choose a market where there's strong demand that we have some agency there, we have some choice there. We can choose to play in a market where there's lots of demand. So I've deliberately chosen to play in a market that is very big, consulting, professional services. That is a big market, right? It is a growing market. It is a market where there's every day, every month, every year, there are new entrants into that market, right? My market is not static, it's dynamic. So I've deliberately chosen a big market where there's lots of demand, okay? That gives me confidence and helps me step into a place of abundance, right? Because there's lots of opportunities, lots of clients I can serve. So that's one choice. But beyond that, you don't have a lot of control. I don't, I don't decide how big the market is or, or, or how it grows. Where I have agency beyond the choosing of the market on the demand side is I have agency on the supply side. That is, I can decide how I'm going to show up in that marketplace and distinguish myself and differentiate myself from the competition. Because your typical supply and demand graph The supply line, the supply curve assumes available alternatives. It assumes that one firm is just like another firm. That there's a hundred firms in the market, that they're all pretty much interchangeable. That's the assumption behind the supply curve. Interchangeability. But what if you come along and you say, well, we're Nothing like all the other options in our market. We're completely unique and we're completely distinct in these very specific ways. And maybe that's not for everybody, but that's for a certain type of client. What happens is now you draw your own supply curve, right? You have, you know, so there's supply one, that's you and there's supply everybody else. And when supply is constrained, price goes up, you now have power. So the big challenge for consultants and professional service providers, especially the ones who are serving larger clients is typically they have no power in those relationships they know it and the client knows it the client knows that if consultant x decides to be a pain in the ass or wants to charge too much money they're going to move on to consultant y and the consultant knows that because they have no power in the relationship they better tread the line they better not do anything that might jeopardize a relationship which is the worst place to be as a consultant because now you're no longer objective You're no longer giving the client objective advice that they need because you're afraid of losing the deal. You've lost your objectivity, you've lost your credibility. The fix is power positioning. It's to craft a position in the marketplace such that for a certain segment of the market, you are the only viable choice, not the best choice, not the better choice, not the different choice, the only viable choice. So that when they engage you, when they see you, when they discover you, they go, oh my goodness, These folks are uniquely positioned to do what we need to do. And we haven't seen anybody else like them before.
1: So you carve out your position, uh, your power positioning, and then obviously it's critical to focus on this pillar number two.
0: So I would actually go to the the third pillar you mentioned next, which is the results mechanism, Mm. because the results mechanism is an extension of positioning. So once I find an expert consultant, professional service provider who clearly is uniquely positioned to do the work that we need to do, and we have trust and confidence that they can do it, The next question becomes, well, how? How does that happen? How does it work? And the results mechanism is a very simple, clear, compelling articulation of here's how we get results. It's a big shift for a lot of consultants because most of them are accustomed to and addicted to selling inputs. And it's a lazy way to sell. The shift is, when we have a results mechanism, is we shift the conversation from inputs and what we're going to do to outputs and what's going to happen, the results that are gonna be achieved. And that's an important shift in the conversation because one, the best clients are the ones who care about outcomes and outputs and not inputs. The best clients are the ones who say, Adam, I don't care. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many meetings. I don't care what the deliverables are. What I care about is are we gonna do this? is the outcome going to happen? And are you with us on this? Those are the best clients because A, they're motivated. B, they pay top dollar because you pay a whole lot more for outcomes and outputs than inputs. C, they give you the space to do your damn job. And the last piece,
1: leadership marketing.
0: Leadership marketing is, is essentially about proving your positioning to the marketplace. So everything up until now it could be a claim, right? I could claim to be the best choice in the market. I can claim to be the only viable choice. I can show you my result mechanism. And maybe you believe it and maybe you don't believe it. And the reality is that most good claims come with a healthy dose of skepticism by design, right? And you know, a lot of folks, they will, they will water down their claims because they want to make it believable or they feel uncomfortable making a certain type of claim. Our program is a good example. 90 day pipeline is pretty clear. Fill your pipeline in 90 days. Really compelling for people that haven't been able to do that for years or don't know the first thing about filling a pipeline. And so you've got to be able to couple that skepticism with proof. And that proof needs to come from your marketing. Right. And a lot of people are thinking, well, yeah, when I get in front of somebody, I'm able to show them, I'm able to demonstrate my expertise, I'm able to show them proof and all those kinds of things. Well, the question is, how are you going to get in front of people? Like, why are they going to have a conversation with you? And if you want to you know, restrict yourself to the personal relationships that you have, then fine, all good. But if those relationships and the scope of your network are insufficient to drive your business, you're going to have to talk to strangers at some point and find ways to open up new relationships. And that's where leadership marketing delivers is you put your expertise on display in front of your market so the people that don't already know you don't already have a existing relationship with you don't already trust you. They can engage with your material and assess the quality of your insights based on their merit and then go, oh, I like the way this person thinks. I like what they have to say. And, wh- and what happens is they go, they say to themselves, we need this kind of thinking inside our organization.
1: I'm curious to know. Based on what you've seen over the past year with the pandemic and as you look forward, do you think LinkedIn holds pole position here or are there new platforms that a B2B seller should be thinking
0: about? I think LinkedIn is the first piece that you want to get dialed in. There are other places you can look once you get LinkedIn dialed in, but it's the obvious place to start for the simple reason that there's no faster way to build a list of specific customers and prospects and companies you want to be working with to build relationships with them, to get content in front of them, to engage them in a conversation all in one platform. There's still nothing like it. LinkedIn is the elephant in the room. There's no B2B platform like it. So it's where everybody ought to start. And for many, it is sufficient. I would argue for most, it is sufficient, right? Because if you're a consultant and you're selling high value deals, you know, you know, in the five figures, and the six figures, you typically don't need a lot of deals, right? Unless you're really looking to grow and scale a very large firm, then that's different. And absolutely, you're going to need to look at other channels as well, right? Paid acquisition, et cetera. Uh, For most independent consultants, boutique firms that have a decent ticket size and a decent lifetime value and ongoing, you know, kind of like engagement sequence, you don't need a ton of clients. You need a few high value clients and LinkedIn absolutely can deliver on that. And then, you know, if your situation is more sophisticated, maybe there are other platforms. The thing that people need to consider in addition to LinkedIn most commonly is building out a channel that you can control more directly. So email marketing is a great one and and, and the one that most people should be thinking about because LinkedIn, it's great from a discovery perspective, you know, because people are there, you know, they're not on your website, they're not anywhere else, like they're not on your blog, they're on LinkedIn. So it's great from a discovery perspective. Where it becomes challenging is that you don't control distribution. You know, if LinkedIn decides to change the algorithm tomorrow, you could, you know, your your reach is limited. You can't like guarantee get in front of people the way that you can with an email list or paid advertising.
1: Let me ask you about sales. So let's talk about best practices, tips, tricks that people seem to overlook. And, you know, my experience with you, you know, you talk a little bit about these winning behaviors in sales that are surprising. And interestingly, the factors that people selling B2B think about, you know, i.e. price, payment terms, location, don't even hit the top 10 here. So what are some of these behaviors in sales that people should understand?
0: So common sense applies here, right? If you put yourself in the buyer's position, what's going to make you choose a consultant or a professional service provider? And it's likely not... At the top of your list is likely not, you know, how good looking are they and do they play a good round of golf? And do I like having conversations with them? Although the latter is maybe relevant, right? But at the end of the day, if you're a serious buyer looking for results, what you want is you want to hire the consultant or the firm that you believe has the highest probability chance of getting you results. That's what you want. You want results, right? Not to feel good or have good conversations, but to get results. So what drives results and how do I get confidence in the ability of a firm or consultant or advisor to get me results? Well, I've got to believe that they know what they're doing, right? I got to believe that they are experts. I've got to believe that they've done this before. I got to believe that they know so much more than we do about the particular problem that we're facing. And so there was a very large study of professional services transactions done by the rain group. This is years ago. It's an old study now, but it still holds true. And what they did was they asked the buyers of 600 some odd professional services transactions to rank the sellers across 43 different factors. And what they found was that the number one thing that the winners of these transactions did that the losers didn't do was in the buyer's words that they said the seller educated me with new ideas and perspectives. And that just makes good sense, right? Because if I'm the buyer and and Adam, you're selling to me and you're you know in both in the marketing process, that's where it begins, but then through to the sales process, you're like helping me see things I couldn't see before. You're helping me uncover mistakes that we made in the past that we didn't even realize were mistakes. You're helping us identify flaws in our thinking and our logic and helping us see what's possible and what we're capable of in ways that we couldn't previously appreciate. That's sales.
1: This idea of actively publishing. So throughout the sales process, right? we when we think about attracting leads beyond our network, top of funnel, middle of funnel, bottom of funnel, sort of channel optimization. As we think about our sales practice, how does actively publishing or, or the term free writing, which you've used, play into all
0: this? So one of the questions that we get a lot is, uh, you know, uh, how do I follow up with this prospect and this deal went cold and not, they're not responding to me and what message do I send to re-engage them and all this kind of stuff? And my response is always, the best follow-up is great marketing. The best follow up is great marketing. Because, you know, what does it say about you if a deal kind of goes cold or they're eh, not even cold? They're, you know, a lot of times we assume that if someone's not replying to us, the deal went cold. No, it could just be that they're busy and you're not their top priority in this particular day or week, but that you're going to come back to the top of the list next week or next month. And that's okay. And you don't control that and you shouldn't get bent out of shape about that. But, we make these assumptions, right? And so what does it say about you if, you know, the the buyer goes a little bit quiet and you're like sliding into their inbox every other day with, "Hey, any updates? Hey, any updates? Hey, any updates?" <laughs> it makes you look needy. Yep. Right? It's like, does this guy have nothing better to do than to bug me about this deal? He must have nothing else going on. Now, I don't want to work with you anymore cuz you're so needy. The the best follow-up is great marketing because what if in the same scenario, you know, uh, you know, I submit a proposal to you, Adam? And um, you go dark on it. And instead of showing up in your inbox with, hey, any updates? Have you looked at it? And do you want to move forward? Uh, You log on to LinkedIn, for example, you open up your inbox and you see a piece of thought leadership, right? And it's here I am the way I attracted you to begin with saying smart things about the problems that you're facing, reminding you through the consumption of that thought leadership why you wanted to work with me in the first place. But I'm not doing it to you. I'm not sending it to you. I am publishing to my platform from a place of leadership and expertise.
1: Where are you at in your head? Like where are you challenged? How are you thinking about the next chapter of, of your professional career, where you are personally?
0: So my current challenge is playing CEO. I've, I've been a good marketer in my career. I've been good at sales. I've, I've built a great program. Uh, I have built a great team now. So I've kind of gotten over the initial hurdle of building a team, building an organization. The team is in place. The offer is fantastic. The wheels are in motion. The gears are turning. and And now I find myself somewhat uncomfortably, frankly, in the CEO's position where I don't have direct responsibility for much of anything apart from leading and managing my team. And that's been a learning experience. I'm probably, you know, like, I'm not beginning that experience now I'm probably on the tail end of of this leg of the journey but it's still it's still the journey is is me getting comfortable being at the helm of the organization and being the leader of the organization and being able to you know I used to think most of my headspace was consumed with helping clients that's what I would think about all the time and now most of my headspace is consumed with helping my team so they can help clients attract deals you know, generate leads, win business. Right. Um, and that's a very different level of thinking that I'm getting accustomed to. It's about building an organization where everybody's personal self-interest is aligned with the interests of the organization. And that's been a wild ride and, and very interesting for me.
1: Ahmed, thanks so much, man, for coming on the show. I really always enjoy our conversations. You have tremendous insights. Where should people go to learn more about you, what you're up to and, and what's happening at Boutique Growth?
0: Yeah, you can go to boutiquegrowth.com. Check us out there. There's links to follow on social. Um, If you're curious about the 90-Day Pipeline in particular, you can go to 90daypipeline.com and check out the info there.
1: And to listeners, thanks as always for tuning in. Appreciate it. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.
0: Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself?
1: now.